Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. Now, to tell you something, people, it's very weird. The place, you know, where me and Joanne moved back her condo, there's this bird that keeps trying to get into our apartment, and I can't figure it out. I don't know what I'm going to do because it's sort of freaking me out because all of a sudden, I'll be sitting there on the couch, and this bird will be fluttering. It'll be fluttering against the glass, but right above the glass and I'm worried that someday when I'm coming back from shopping and if I open the door the bird's going to fly in and it's going to freak me out because I've never had a bird in my apartment but then I started thinking you know as I said I lived out west for the last 20 years I think birds migrate I, I'm, I've I lost touch and so I'm thinking like in LA we always had birds that would like wake up at like three in the morning they'd be tweeting away but I'm thinking in a few months I, or a month or two I may not have this this problem with the bird I'll keep you updated anyway we have a we have a great show today. This gentleman is uh, we're going to talk about his upbringing in Buffalo, his uh, his latest release, which is a tribute to Bob Dylan, which I heard blown in the wind earlier today, and it really kicks ass. And he just got back from Europe, I believe. And my guest is Willie Nile. How you doing, Willie? Hello, Steve. I'm doing all right. I'm a little ragged for wear, but I'm good. good. Now, now you were you were over how many how many weeks were, were you in you where were you at you were in Europe or you were, where were you at? I was in uh, I was in the UK. Scotland and England uh, for three weeks touring a lot of shows most every night not every night but almost great fun we had a, it was a great time it's always interesting but my voice is a little worn out from the, the last two shows it was pretty ragged but we made it and it was good fun how do you how do you keep your voice going like I used to do stand-up comedy and if I if I had a cold sometimes I lose my voice and I drink some uh, hot tea with lemon how do you prepare your voice let's say like you've been gigging for three weeks straight and you know a singer is a lot more than a comic. We just talk. You guys have to sing, and you have longer sets. How do you prepare your voice when you start feeling that it's a little bit shaky? And what do you do? Well, I know uh, uh, people normally, a lot of singers will do vocal exercise. But I don't do that. And, uh, <coughs> excuse me, and um, there's something called singer saving grace to spray. David Johansson uh, turned me on to it. It's uh, getting the health food stores. It's a uh, spray with eucalyptus and some other stuff, and it lubricates the throat. It really does help. Like if I can't hit the high ooze, you know, woo, if you can't hit them, some of that spray might help a bit. But the last two nights of the tour, I was really ragged. I was worried about being able to do the show. Uh, never, uh, never uh, canceled the show for any physical reasons yet, knock on wood. So I did, his, my, my bass player, Johnny Paisano, he does vocal exercises. So I did it with him, and it helped a bit. But normally I don't do anything. You know, I just try to um, uh, sing from, you know, my gut, which kind of takes some of the weight off the vocal cords. But I don't do exercises. I know it's probably the smartest thing to do, but I'm not the smartest guy that ever lived. <laughs> <laughs> but I like when you sing from your gut. You know, I love guys who sing from their guts. I don't want to hear someone who's doing exercises and hand, hears all fancy smancy. I want someone who's got feeling in their in their when they're belting it out. So now, now you grew, well, you grew up in Buffalo, and now now your house your your house was a musical house. Am I am I right? Yes, my my grandfather on my father's side, Dick Noonan, he uh, ran an orchestra in vaudeville. He was a piano player, and he had a little band. That played through vaudeville for over twenty years, and uh, he also worked in the post office six days a week. And he did that seven nights a week. Talk about hard work! And he was a great uh, pianist. He could play for four hours and not play the same thing. I, I remember hearing him play as a little kid, and then my, my uncles played. 
boogie-woogie, ragtime stuff. My two older brothers both took classical piano lessons, and, and, uh, and there was always music in the house. You know, uh, mom, mom would always play, have records on, you know, classical, big band, you know, popular, whatever. And when, once rock and roll hit, you know, on the radio, uh, that was it. I mean, I heard the early, the early days because of my older brothers. I heard the early stuff, you know, uh, Little Richard, Elvis Presley, Everly Brothers, Buddy Holly, um, Fats Domino, God bless Fats Domino, passed away. Uh, you know, I heard that early stuff. I got that as a little kid, and it really just, that was it. I was a goner from that moment on. So what was your course of action, and did you go get a guitar? Did you play, I mean, what what did you decide to do? You heard it, you wanted to play. What inst- what instrument interests you the most when you were uh, when you were younger? Because you know there was piano around you, but were you sort of like there was piano around? There was piano around, yeah. And, and I took piano lessons. I took classical piano lessons from age when I was eight years old. I took it for a, a number of years. I took drums when I was uh, around the same time. I took I wanted to be a play the drums because I liked making a racket. Right. And so uh, my parents said, "Well, look, if you want to play drums, you take drums. You got to take the piano as well." So I did, you know, and. Uh, I wasn't particularly good at either one, but I got uh, exposed to a lot of music that way. And uh, I didn't play the guitar, you know. Um, I started writing poetry in high school, and then uh, when I went to, I started writing songs as well. And when I went to, uh, I was in college, and my roommate first year had a guitar, you know, and there was a lot of downtime, so I learned to play the guitar, and that just really transforms things. All my all the poetry I was writing, I really started to put into songs heavily then. And when I came back, I was one year I spent in Ohio in college, and when I moved back to Buffalo for the uh, after the for the I came back for Christmas time. I sat at the piano and kind of retaught myself um, piano, uh, focusing on chords instead of uh, particular notes. And uh, just like when you play guitar, I'm not like a lead guitar player. I play chords, you know, and uh, I play the piano that way as well. And uh, good fun. It's an easy way to do it. And so that, that was it. And uh, after the races, went, I went. Now, what, what is your course of action? You're sitting there. You know you, you, now you know you want to be a musician. Is that when you moved to Greenwich Village or when you moved to New York? Or when did, when did you make that? Well, no. When I, was, when I was like four years old, five years old, six, I wanted, I was, my, my dream was to be a classical pianist, you know, play, you know. Chopin and Rachmaninoff and Liszt and Beethoven, that stuff, that, that stuff really moved me. And so I didn't think about, you know, and I just loved music. I was a fan like anybody else, the British Invasion, you know, the Motown, Dylan, you know, uh, the, the whole rock revolution that happened hit me hard, you know, hit me spot on like so many others. And, uh, I, you know, I just started writing in high school. I didn't have any design to be any kind of a saw an artist or anything, but I started writing poetry, and then it, it, when I started learning the guitar, I put all that into songs. So I'd play uh, piano and guitar right on both. And while I was in college, I just was, I thought, well, I'm going to go to New York when I'm out of college and see if I can make records. And so when I graduated from the University of Buffalo, I, I had been traveling down summers to uh, hang out in New York in the, in the Greenwich Village area, <coughs> which is where I am now. And, you know, just checking out the scene, it was really fascinating to me and interesting. So I moved to New York, you know, when I got to college and started playing at open mics and uh, pursued it from there. What was the music scene like back then? I mean, you know, you know, it must have been really, it must have been a great time for music. It's just a trend, a changing scene. I know I read in some were on your bio that, you know, you would go to CBGB and you'd see the Ramones and stuff like that. What was the music scene like for you? Was it, could you feel the excitement? 
Well, initially, when I first moved down, like in, uh, in the late 60s, I'd hitchhike early, so I hitchhiked down and hitchhike back and just go to the clubs and see the music, and it was pretty pretty uh, exciting. And then when I moved here, and uh, I, I didn't have a band or anything, I couldn't afford to hire a band, I had no experience with uh, you know playing with other musicians, really. I just was a songwriter who wrote songs, and when I started playing out, uh, the folk scene struck me as a, a lot. Of, uh, some of it was uh, a little too precious and clicky for me. Some of it was great, you know. Uh, the Road Sisters who came up through that, they were great. And uh, so at first it was like holdovers. It was like ghost of the seventies early on, you know, ghost of the sixties kind of, you know, haunting the village. And then see, I played in the clubs, and met a lot of great friends, a lot of great singers and songwriters, and. Uh, uh, when CBGB's happened, I went one day, I'm reading the Village Voice, and I see an ad. I was looking for places to play, you know. I was on, you know, on my own, and uh, I saw this club, uh, CBGB and Omfug, which means Country Bluegrass and Blues, and Other Music for Underground Gormandizers. That's the name <laughs> of the club. And uh, I just liked the way the, the, the ad looked, so I picked up my guitar, and I walked down Bleecker Street to the end. It ends at the Bowery. And... Uh, there it is right across. I went in there one afternoon and and I walked up to the bar and uh, said to the, it was midday, you know, it was a, at the time uh, it was like a Bowery, it was a Bowery bar, you know, and I didn't realize it was a Hells Angels bar as well. And I asked the woman behind the counter, how, how do I uh, get to play here? Who do I talk to? And she said, oh, that would be Hilly. He's in the back. Just wait. He'll come out. So I waited around, had a beer sitting there, no, no Hilly. 20 minutes goes by, I walk over to the jukebox, and I look up, they had great jukebox. Uh, it was really a, a legendary jukebox, I had a CD. And the, I noticed that the last song on the jukebox, the, the, the single, both sides were by this guy named Hilly Crystal. And I thought, well, how many Hillies are there in the world? So I pumped about $4 a quarter <laughs> into the machine and played one of those songs, you know, $4 worth. And so the same song played again and again and again. And after about nine, ten times of playing, <laughs> out from the back comes this grizzly bear, this bearded hulk of a guy. It just woke up. Obviously, it woke him up. But he's like, what the hell? <laughs> and I walked up to him and I said, hi, are you Hilly? He goes, uh, yeah. I said, I like your song. <laughs> and uh, I said, he just looked at me like, what, are you nuts? <laughs> and, uh, and I said, uh, uh, how, do, how do you get to play here? And he goes, well, get, get on the stage and Thing, you know, I'll listen, I'll, you know, I'll hear you. So I just took my guitar out, got up on stage and uh, sang a few songs. He said, you're hired. So, uh, you know, I had a couple of gigs there. There was, at the time, the musical, uh, there was a jazz, uh, a professor from uh, City College in New York uh, was a jazz player, a really nice guy. And uh, uh, he, when I, he would set me up, you know, and I would play a set and, uh, First time I played, I noticed a lot of people came in while I was playing. It was dark. I couldn't see. And when I got off, they were all Hell's Angels. And so uh, it was fascinating with my real, my first exposure to uh, the CB scene. And at the time, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, what became the punk mecca. About two or three months later, um, after I played there, uh, Tom Verlaine uh, and Richard Lloyd of the band Television, the best band I ever saw in New York, just incredible. They walked into CBGB's, and uh, I guess the story goes, they asked Hilly if they could start playing there on a weekly basis or, you know, regular basis, and they uh, they did. And I, I went early on when they played there, and that, 
Patty Smith started playing there. I, I went to see television play because there were posters around town that said a Patty Smith quote about television that intrigued me. She said they had the raw energy of the Rolling Stones. Well, I was a fan of Patty's at the time, and that was enough for me. So from the very beginning, I was at CB's, and it was just fascinating to see that place um, bloom and unfold, and uh, all these outcasts and loners. and Because at, at the time, the music scene, when you, you a question, what, what was it like? Well, you had open mics for acoustic people on the play uh, acoustic music, and uh, the clubs generally, I mean, not generally, I mean, you had to play cover stuff, cover music, you know, other people's songs. It was not very uh, active in terms of uh, if you had a band where you wrote your own stuff. But Hilly, you could only play that if you wrote your own music. It was just, he really was a, a, a prime uh, mover in that area where these bands would come in, you know, the Ramones from Queens. People read about it, heard about it, came in, started playing, and just attracted this really intriguing uh, cast of characters. Jim Jarmusch, the great uh, indie filmmaker. You know, I remember seeing him around there all the time with his, his, he had white hair. You know, this, some, this, this a woman that became a famous clothing designer. Just all these characters came out of the, the woodwork. And uh, that was some interesting place back then. It was like mid to late 70s. And then it, it carried on for a couple decades. But in the early days, it was really fascinating. So it's so cool you're there, you know, and, and you saw all this happen. So then now, how do you end up getting your own gig and getting your first record deal? Well, uh, on Bleecker Street, I live, you know, I'm looking out the window now and I can see Bleecker Street. Um, a club opened up, Kenny's Castaway. It used to be uptown on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Uh, the, the New York Dolls came out of there and Springsteen used to play up there. And I didn't know of it you know, up there. I never, I went up there one time just to check it out. I heard of it. And uh, it was fascinating, actually. Springsteen and Bruce and, Bruce and Gary Talent were sitting at the bar. I was there, you know, just checking out the thing. It was a place I could play. And, uh, uh and walked Springsteen and, and uh, Gary Talent and uh, just have a beer. It was hanging out. And, uh, it was, it was, it was, it was I didn't have a band, so I realized it wasn't the kind of place that I could play. But at, at one point, Pat Kenny, the owner, moved it down to Bleecker Street, Kenny's Castaways. Pat was this great Hawkins on Irish man with spirit and character and, you know, didn't mince words and, and, and he was, you know, nobody's fool. A really great guy, great character. Uh, he's very much missed. Anyway, he opened up this club and it was a long, thin, narrow club. And at the far end of the club was the stage. And then there were, there were seats, half, half the plate, half the uh, room. That, that, that back room was uh, was seats, and then the, from half out was the bar, and there was no exposure. So if you're playing, if you're on stage playing, and uh, uh, people are talking at the bar, you know, you can get, you know, buried trying to play. If you're trying to play some acoustic, sensitive, you know, uh, music, you can, you know, they can get drowned out by the sound. But it was, it was ideal for me. You know, uh, because I had all kinds of songs, and I, uh, you know, I, I could make a racket. And I was playing by myself again. I played solo there, and uh, I, one night I auditioned. Someone, you know, I said, "Can I play some songs?" And Don Hill, who uh, went on to uh, found the legendary club Don Hill, Don was uh, managing the club, and he saw me play, and he, he said, "Told Pat, you should hire this guy. This guy's really good." And but Don's really the guy I have to thank. 
for getting my first real gig in uh, in the village in New York City. And I opened up six nights, you know, you do six nights a week, two sets a a night. I played six nights a week. (coughs) And, uh, uh, it went really well the first time, I, you know, and then maybe six weeks later I got hired, you know, they would bring me back. So I think the third time I played, um, it, it, people were starting to come, you know, around. So I, I, I did this one gig in July of that same year. I think it was 78. I think, I think the first gig was there was maybe February or March. And then I played again in May and then uh, maybe June. And then July I'm playing there and I'm on stage and I would introduce. I didn't have a band. I couldn't afford. I was broke. Couldn't afford a, a, to 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 hire a band, and, and I didn't want to join a group because I just was playing my own songs, you know. And uh, I had a lot of very limited experience in that regard. But it, and, and, and another sense, it really helped me because it, it, it songwriting was my strength, and having that all the time to do that really helped, you know, build my uh, songwriting capabilities. And so I play I'm on stage one night, playing, opening up for a friend of mine. You know, it was the opening act. I played for 40 minutes or whatever for some minutes. And, uh, and this guy's sitting three rows back, you know, guy with glasses. Um, and he, I could tell he was, this guy's digging it, you know, and, uh, jumping and moving all around. Yeah. He was, anyway, it turned out it was Robert Palmer of the New York Times. I didn't know it at the time. And then that, when I got off the stage, everybody said, that's, that's, you know who that is? You know who that is? I said, no, I don't know who that is. And, uh, I met him, and he was really very nice, and he wrote this uh, really great review that got in the New York Times, that the kind of thing you couldn't make up, you know, you couldn't even do. It was really nice, he wrote a great piece, and uh, that got me signed up to the Records. Once that came out, a couple of days later, the place was packed, you know, you couldn't get in, you know, who's this new guy kind of thing. It was fascinating to see from the inside, you know, because I, you know, I'm, I'm just me, I don't, um, I'm not looking to be American Idol. I never was. You know, I was just trying to make a living as a songwriter and wanted to make records. It got me signed to a major label. So playing Kenny's Castaways is what got me signed and reviewed by Robert Palmer in the New York Times. Now, you recorded that first album, and then you went on tour with The Who? I mean, that must be pretty, uh, yeah. that must be fascinating for you, you know, any musician to go out with legends, and you know you're going into a, a a crowd, you know, you're going to go to play to packed houses. I mean, it's not like you're you're going with a band. You know, it's the damn who. How did that come about? What goes through your mind? Because you were saying you were playing Kenny's. You know, and all of a sudden you're going to be touring with the who. Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, I never hear the guy who, you know, never played with a band in in a, uh, in, in a live show ever. So I'm playing solo shows, and I was having a great time doing it. You know, and I was getting learning my. Uh, trade and uh, I get signed to this major record company and uh, I make my first record we were I got to put a band together from guys I know uh, some guys from the CBGB scene from a band called uh, the criers they were from uh, um, Mississippi great band they got signed to Mercury and uh, the lead guitarist uh, Clay Barnes and uh, the bass player Tommy Etheridge Tommy's brother has played with uh, Willie Nelson forever you know, since, I don't know, late 60s or something. And uh, uh, and then a guitarist I met in Boston, Peter Hoffman. And J.D. Doherty was uh, Patty Smith's drummer. I knew J.D. And then uh, we went, rehearsed for, uh, you know, four days. Went in the studio and, and over a week, two-week period, made the album. 
and that was my first experience really with a full band going in and rocking and making a recording. So the record comes out. I think we did that in the... <coughs> the record came out in maybe March, late February, March of uh, 1980. And so I started in May, um, I'm start, or April, late April, I started doing shows with the band. I was going to do a tour across the, like a three-week tour across the U.S. And it was the first time I'd ever played a public shows with a band. And uh, it was great fun. I mean, when you write these songs, you envision, imagine how they would sound with, you know, pounding drums, thumping bass, you know, and jangly rocking, you know, guitars. And uh, here we are doing it. It was a great band. I've been blessed, really. I've had four amazing bands over my lifetime and, and uh, just great players all. And so we're, we're playing, and the tour was going to end, and the last show was in the... Los Angeles, a club called the Roxy. And uh, so we're playing the Roxy. And someone at the record company told me uh, some weeks earlier that Pete Townsend was a big fan of my record. And I said, I just thought to myself, yeah, sure he is. <laughs> I didn't believe it. You know, I just thought well, this is some kind of record company. I mean, they, they you know, they tried for me. And, and uh, you know, I've met a lot of good people on the way. I don't have these horror stories. Of, I mean, I've got this, this ups and downs for sure of record business stuff. But... Well, I met a lot of good people on the way, and uh, I didn't believe it that he was a fan. I thought, well, okay, great. Anyway, so we play at the Roxy, uh, the last show of this tour, and Freddie Mercury was in the audience, and uh, from Queen, Graham Parker was in the audience, and it was packed. John Hyatt opened the show, and he was, you know, a big name man <laughs> in L.A. anyway, and um, a really good guy. So we, we played the set. And we had a blast. And after the show, uh, the Who's manager, Bill Kerbishley, came backstage with a number of people from the Who uh, uh, management team organization. And he came back. That was just great. You know, we've become good friends. He's a great, great guy. And he said to me flat out, you know, Who are touring across the U.S. We just did uh, eight shows in L.A. And, of course, we're going to play Phoenix next. You want to, you know, they bumped off uh, whatever, and it was open, and they kicked them off the tour, and we got on the tour, and I got the tour across the country with the U.S., across the U.S. with the Who. I mean, it was so great. I'm a Who fan from way back. You know, I saw them as a kid in the 60s, and uh, here we are opening up shows, you know, uh, over a few-week a few period, and to see them every night just be so amazing. Uh, you know, it, it was 1980, it was uh, Kenny Jones' was first tour, his first tour as a drummer, because uh, Keith Moon had passed away, but they couldn't have been nicer to us. You know, we had full access. They, were, they, they just were really nice. Treated us like, you know, you know, people, and uh, it was just time of a lifetime. I mean, you, you can't imagine the thrill night after night. You know, I could watch on the side of the stage, wherever, to see Pete, you know, and Roger and John do their stuff, and it was just amazing. Now, it's I... a real thrill. And we're, we're friends. We're friends to this day. Now, as a performer, watching them, would you learn from them as a performer? Like, when you watch, oh. did you sit there and really take it in and say, this is how you master a stage? Absolutely. Well, after the first show, the first night we were playing, uh, you know, we were in Phoenix, and uh, we had a half, we were, we were to play half an hour. About halfway through our set, you know, there's the people start calling out for the who, who. It sounds like boots. 
and I've been told that like it's you know it's really rough, and I would I, I can understand that. If I want to go see the Who, I want to see them. I don't care okay, who's over. And uh, so it was it was uh, I, I I was I turned around to the band. They were like white as ghosts. It was funny. They were, I didn't care. I think I'm just gonna tell myself I don't care what they they all think. And uh, I met Pete after that, but before they went on stage, and he he gave me a piece of advice. You know, the bigger the uh, arena. The bigger the play stage, the bigger the place you play, the more you have to uh, uh, exaggerate, you know, and make it bigger. And uh, I watch them every night, totally learn from them. I mean, masters. They're, they're, they're as good as it gets with a live performing, you know. It was just so much fun, and they were so nice. Last November, I did a gig in, uh, a year ago. Uh, Roger Daltrey was doing a cancer benefit downtown with most of the Who Band, and... Uh, I sang three songs with them. It was great fun. Got to sing Substitute. The kids are all right. And uh, what else did I sing? Mm, won't Get Fooled Again. I mean, total blast. That's that's just insane, especially in uh, Frank Winnebago's music, just the chance to get those songs, and they're such all classics. I mean, it must it must be made. Yeah. Now, you you, now, you you disappeared for a while, then, then you came back in 87, I believe. Uh-huh. Yeah, I walked away from the record. This is what I did. Hang on. <coughs> um, I made two records, and you know, as a you know, the, the hype around me was the next big thing. You know, was nonsense, and uh, so the, you know, you had business. You know, these sharks all over the place. And when it be, there came a point when when it became more about business than music. You know, and I'm not going to name names or you know, mention anybody's names, but I thought, you know what? I, did, I came here to make music and have a good time doing it. I'm not, these people are not going to kill my buzz. I'm done. You know, if it's not going to be fun, see you later. So, literally, you know, walked away from it. And, uh, because I, I didn't, I love music to this day. And it, and it, it never, they haven't killed my buzz. Still love it. You know, with the ups and downs. And, uh, so, uh, I was away for 10 years and finally came, you know, I had a lot of songs, finally, I did a gig in Sweden with a charity benefit, and uh, it was videotaped. And uh, uh, I played with uh, Greg Trooper's band, uh, a friend of mine, singer-songwriter, great guy, great songwriter, passed away this past January, he's a great guy. And uh, Larry Campbell was his lead guitarist who played with Bob, Bob Dylan for the last well, for 10, 12 years. And uh, that video got me signed to Columbia Records. And so I made a record for Columbia that came out in 91. That's how that came to be. I walked away, and when I tried to get back in, it was really difficult. You know, you're out of sight, out of mind, pretty much. You go away for a few years, and nobody cares. It's like, you know, it's a gold mine kind of industry. What did you do? But it's been an interesting journey, and I must say, the time away was beneficial. I, was, I you know, I, I woodshedded and worked on my craft as a soul ladder and stuff, and, and, and uh, raised kids. What you know, made it was a hard you, time, but it, in retrospect, it was meaningful. What, what made you go back? I mean, what was, when you said, did your friend call you and say, hey, man, we want you to gig with us? What made you go to Sweden to come back? I mean, you had to have it in your heart. You still were playing, you're still writing, but you weren't playing out. What What was the factor yeah, that I made didn't you perform. decide? I, I, when I walked away, like in 80, well, 81 or so, second record came out in 81, and I did a little bit, did, did a few, a few stints, a few runs of, you know, touring here and there, and then what? I'm out of here and just walked. That was I didn't play at all the rest of the eighties. And then I, I got a phone call out of the blue in eighty seven from my friend Greg Trooper, who 
was in uh, he was in uh, Norway. It wasn't Sweden. It was Norway. And he said, "Look, I'm, do- I'm touring around here, and there's this promoter. I gave him your number. You know, he he, he said uh, that I, he rem- Greg reminded him of, of me. And he says, oh, well, who is a good friend of mine? And they thought I was dead. I mean, I really literally just disappeared off the face of the earth. Which is something to be said for disappearing. Anyway, they invited me to come over to Sweden <coughs> or to Norway to Oslo to play a benefit for this uh, writer. I guess the godfather of uh, uh, Tori Olsen was uh, like the you know real the father godfather of the writing the critics music critics in in Norway, and he you know had a magazine and whatever he, he died in a car crash in a snowstorm or whatever on the way back from uh, the uh, factory or whatever. And they were raising money for his wife and kids, you know. And I, I get this phone call out of the out of the blue. Would I come over and play? They'd fly me over and put me up. I wouldn't cost me a dime. And Greg's band could back me up. Greg Trooper. And uh, I thought about it, and I, you know, I hadn't played in years, you know. And uh, I, I did. I said, all right, you know, I'll do it. I went over there. You know, took my twelve-year-old daughter. Stayed a week. It was fascinating. It was really the first of my, that was the first time I'd ever been to Europe. And, uh, oh, no, no, I went to 1980 doing interviews across Europe. I forget about that. That was a wild thing. And uh, so I went, and that was the first time I played in Europe. And that videotape got videoed and got me signed to Columbia. And then made that record. Roger McGuinn played on it. Richard Thompson played on it. Uh, a couple of the Road Sisters sang, uh, Terry Roach sang it loud and Wainwright. Um, Robbie McIntosh, who was playing with McCartney at the time. Uh, Paul Wickens, who's McCartney's keyboard player. A couple of Paul shows uh, back in September. And Wicks was, you know, he's just a great, great guy and a great player. So it's been a really curious, interesting journey, to say the least. Yeah, and then so with that that album, you got to play on Letterman, which must be cool, because Letterman always has a good ear for music. I mean, that must have been like, basically, you knew you were back when a, a show like that asked you to be on. It was fascinating. Well, my Columbia Records are a big, powerful record company. Now, I was not a big signing. I was kind of a small, you know, fringe artist on their roster. Uh, but I got on Letterman's show, and it was uh, it was good fun. You know, Paul Schaefer. I did a gig with Paul Schaefer uh, just before I went to, uh, literally two days before I went to uh, the U.K. in October. It was like a tribute to the bottom line, this great club that was in New York for so many years. So I saw Paul... And uh, yeah, I saw Paul's band backed me with uh, my two guitar players, and uh, I saw they have an open lonely. It was a riot. Dave Letterman couldn't have been nicer. You know, really was nice. It was a great experience, fun to do. As far as being back, I mean, once I once I made that record, because for me, Steve, it's it's about the songs and about the recordings. You know, and the live shows are celebrations of that. But you know, I, I don't measure my you know that the, the word success is a curious bird. You know, uh, you know. Does it mean you're top of the charts? Does it mean you're stinking rich? You know, I'm all for being stinking rich. You know, I'm not, but you know, I, I would take it in a minute. But the fame thing has never been uh, um, something I sought, a seek, or would, would want. It seems like a complete nuisance to be so famous. But whatever. Anyway, uh, they, my, the guy that signed me to. Uh, Columbia was on the way out of the, uh, when my record came out, <clears throat> and so it didn't. That was very, 
there was no support for the record when it came out, so it kind of came and went. So it's back in the middle of nowhere, you know, after it came out. But I got to make this record that, you know, I'm really proud of, called Places I've Never Been. You know, I got to play with some uh, people that I admire dearly, some, you know, legends, and the band played great. Proud of that record. So in, in some way, I, got, I knew when I was told, like, look, this record's not going to do nothing because there's no support for it. And I, I know the record business, that, you know, it's right, a lot of right time, right place. But I got to make that record, which I was proud of. You know, life is brief. And if you get to do things that you care about and are meaningful for you, then that's, there's something to be said about that. So I was I'm proud of that record. I'm glad I got to make it. And then, I, I think a year later, I put out an EP called Hard Times in America. I wrote, wrote a song about it. It was an election year, and I wanted to put this song out and just put it out on a small, small new label, and then disappeared again. You know, I just thought, ah. not going to be for me. And, uh, and a friend of mine convinced me some years later that I should be putting out records on my own. But this whole thing, there was a new indie scene that was happening, and that it was something to do, and so I did it. I made a re an album called uh, Beautiful Records of the World, and it came out at the very end of 99, so I considered 2000 it came out, and... And it, you know, it, it, I borrowed money to do it, paid it back, you know, and made some money. Um, and it just kind of got me back in, in, into playing, uh, some live shows. And, uh, uh, yeah, that, that got me back. And then I made an album called uh, Streets of New York, which came out in 2006. That really put me back on the map, you know, the reviews. I mean, Beautiful Back of the World won, uh, some awards, independent music awards and stuff. Streets of New York really kind of put me back on the map. You know, it charted and billboard. It was uh, another indie label. And uh, since then, I, I started playing more, going to Europe. I went to Europe uh, early on in the 90s to start to play solo at first, and then sometimes with an Italian band, sometimes with a Spanish band. And uh, so, yeah, just, you know, it was sporadic touring. And then I think the past, I don't know how many years, seven years, I've been really five, six, seven years, been really playing a lot, you know, a hundred plus shows a year and something like that. And I'd never done that, you know, like in the eighties, I walked away. I didn't do a lot of touring. I toured with the Who, it was amazing and did some, you know, small runs, but it was not, I didn't tour in the eighties. The good thing about that was I never burned out on the road, you know, and same with the nineties, you know, I never was like a road dog. Now, you know, I've been just the last, the last few years has been more of that where I've really been playing a lot, but. I'm enjoying it very much. Now, you know, took a long time to long time to get here, but it's it's a good place to get to. Now your latest your latest uh, project was Positively Bob. How did that come about? And it's just so cool. I mean, it's obvious you're a Bob Dylan fan. And when did you become a Bob Dylan fan? And what made you decide to sit there to do a project where you are re-recording his songs, but in different ways, like Blown with the Wind, very different than Bob's version. And how do you how did you decide how you were going to play? Each song, like, how did you pick the genre you were going to play? Well, I've been trying to uh, put out, I, I'm writing all the time, you know, and I've got so many songs, and I've been trying to put out, like, an album a year on average, you know, and I've done that. I've got a pretty good run string, not every year, but close to it, the last, uh, I don't know, a year or so. And uh, a year ago, June, um, no, May, it was Bob Jones, in 2006, it was Bob Jones' 75th birthday, and I got a call from a club here in New York, City Winery, 
uh, asking if I wanted to come. Bob Dylan told me the birthday celebration night when I come and play four songs. And uh, uh, I said, well, let me, let me think about it, you know. And, and I spent one night looking all over a list of the songs and thought what could be fun to play and what could I bring some good energy to. And uh, came up with four songs. And then when we did the gig, I went with my bass player, Johnny, and uh, Johnny Paisano and, and James Maddox, a great singer-songwriter friend of mine, and my buddy Frankie Lee, who uh, played step tambourine. So we had so it was such a good time, and hearing all those great Bob songs that night, Dylan songs that night. And while I was playing the songs, and when I was you know rehearsing them and playing that night, I made a, I said to the audience, you know, you don't get to hear these songs, you know, hard rains are going to fall. I mean, uh, it's just a masterpiece, but you don't hear it. <coughs> so <clears throat> the joy of kind of rediscovering that material that evening and realizing that it still had such resonance, I thought, you know, I've got grandchildren, you know, you know what, uh, they, they, their lives would be richer knowing uh, that uh, Bob Dylan wrote the great songs and knowing those songs. So I thought, well, those, I got four here, and so I just looked and picked six more uh, that would fit. I came up with a batch of songs I thought would work together and uh, thought about how to, pro I didn't belabor it, you know, I just picked ones I thought might, we could, I could do something with. And then arrangement-wise, you know, when I was thinking of Hard Rains Are Gonna Fall, I was thinking of Polero, you know, bum, 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 that could be interesting. And I wanted to, I rocked up uh, Low in the Wind, I thought, well, what if the Ramones did it? Right. You know, I just had some fun with it, some train homesick blues. And I was thinking Chuck Berry meets the Beastie Boys at uh, Bob Dylan uh, Hotel or something. And <clears throat> the collection, I made it as a labor of love, really. Out of respect, I wanted to do with respect and have fun with them. And, and we did. And, and uh, I was just going to make it and put it in some of the shows. It felt so good that I thought, well, <laughs> I'll just do this as a regular, a real release. You know, and, and it's gotten great feedback. <laughs> and it's got great feedback, and I'm really encouraged. And it's been a real joy playing the songs live. It's fun, and uh, the songs are great. Bob wrote amazing songs, and it's fun to do them our way, so to speak. You know. Now, how does the how do the crowds react? Do they are they really into it? Because once again, it's a oh, song yeah. we know Dylan. Everyone knows oh, yeah. Dylan. So, like, what is your favorite track from the album? The crowds, the, the, the favorite favorite track, it's hard to pick. I mean, I like different things about all of them. You know, uh, there's an uh, obscure one at the end called Abandoned Love, which is just a real jewel of a song that he only played live once, you know, in 1975. But I heard it because I was in the clubs back then here in the village, and a buddy of mine taped it or heard it, and he was playing it in his sets, so I knew of it. Favorite song? I mean, I don't know, maybe Blowing the Wind or Hard Rain's Gonna Fall. You know, Rainy Day Women's fun to play as well. I mean, they all are, but they're just, there's power. We did a version of the times that are changing that I'm, I'm really proud of. But maybe if, if I picked two, maybe I'd pick Hard Rain's Gonna Fall and Blowing the Wind. Hard to pick them. I like them all. It's like a body of, it's a, just a piece of this, this great writer's work. And, uh, you know, and, and it was an honor to do it. And I'm just thrilled it came out as well as it did. Now, has his people got to you about if they like it or not? Or 
Oh, there was a, yeah, I, I said a, uh, the, the face, Bob Dylan's official Facebook page put a, a, a blast, a blast out about the album, you know, which they don't do, which was a real honor. And, uh, yeah, I've gotten great feedback from, uh, you know, uh, his, uh, his management, uh, you know, really liking it. And I sent a copy to Bob. <coughs> so I've gotten nothing but good things from, back from them. I mean, I was done as a labor of love, you know, I wasn't looking. I don't make records to get anyone, even ones I do. I try to get them so that they sound good to my ears. And I figure, well, if I like it, maybe somebody else might like it, you know? And, but to get that kind of feedback was very heartening, really was. I mean, especially to get a, you know, a, a nice nod from uh, the Dylan, Dylan's people. So great. And his and Facebook page, pretty great. Now, now how, how do you... I'm pretty grateful. How did you get to know Springsteen? I know you've joined him on stage. He's joined you on stage. I know you said you saw him in that bar with Gary Talent years ago. But how did your relationship cultivate with Springsteen? And what is that like when someone like that wants you to come on stage with them? Well, it's a total blast. I mean, I, I met years ago, in the, like in 1980, when I was touring behind that first record. I did a show or two with Southside Johnny, you know, in Jersey. And Teddy Scalfo was one of his, uh, Bruce's wife was one of his background singers at the time. And, you know, we would do our, our show and then we'd be backstage. And, uh, uh, Johnny's background singers would come and, you know, be on stage and off stage. We were hanging out. We became friends. Years later, real nice people, really good people. And then years later, like 91, when my Columbia record came out, I was in Los Angeles doing, uh, interviews, publicity for that album. <coughs> And uh, I was walking through the Sunset Marquee Hotel and uh, with the publicist and uh, uh, Patty Scalfos was sitting there calling me, Willie, come here, come here, how are you? We love your record, you know, Bruce and I was to it, you know, we love it, you know, what are you playing, we want to come see you. She couldn't have been nicer, you know, and uh, not too long after that, I think it was, well, no, it was, maybe, uh, I was off Columbia at the time, so maybe it was a year or two later. Bruce came out with some record, and he was doing a show at the bottom line. And uh, my son was working there, not you know, a few blocks from where I live. And uh, and, he, and the Bruce was doing a private thing, you know, for the record company. And my son called me and said, "Hey, you know, uh, Bruce's wife Patty's here." She says, "You know, I, I introduced himself. I told him to come on over. He wanted to see him." So I went over and met Bruce there. It was like ninety one maybe something like that and uh later in the year and uh he was very very nice you know we became friends I and mean, he was busy working but you know and over the years you know i, you know, I go to a bruce show he called me up when, when the first time 2003 i was i, was, I went to see him at uh, darien lake outside of buffalo it was like a 20,000 seat play something like that 15 20,000 and uh uh, went back to say hello. I had my kids with me. And Johnny Cash had just died, and Warren Zevon had just died, you know. And uh, I, and I showed earlier in the week I uh, that I played. I played a Warren Zevon song, and I played a Johnny Cash song. So I saw Bruce, said hello, we talked a little bit about it, you know. And because uh, I know he was friends with, with friends with Warren. I had met Warren. We shared a dressing room one day, and uh, wrote him. Like a month before he died, he texted me, wrote me back. Uh, I was wondering how he was doing because I heard he was ill. Well, anyway, long story short, Bruce said, Why don't you want to come up and sing Glory Days with 
and uh, again, at first I thought he was kidding. Like <laughs> the thing with uh, the who manager, I thought he was kidding when he first said he want to open up. Then he, he then he wasn't. So, so I, I played Glory Days with him. It was really such fun, man. To be on stage with that band, the sound is just so large and so. It's like an exploding volcano. It's just loud. It's rocking. Those guys know how to play. Bruce is a master. He knows how to do it. And it was so much fun. So instead of going to the show, you know, sitting there watching with my, my kids, next thing I'm on stage. It's really <laughs> funny. And uh, that happened uh, uh, two weeks later. I went to uh, see him play at uh, Shea Stadium. So this is October 3rd and 4th. I remember it because it was the end of their tour. October 3rd and 4th, 1980. And uh, I went I went out and I, on the 3rd, I went back to say hello and thank him for bringing me on stage. And he sees me and says, hey, why don't I come up and sing uh, Twist, what is it, uh, sing with Gary U.S. Bond, singing uh, yeah. with Gary Stone. I know this. I, I can't. Yeah, I know it. I can't think but of it. I can't think of it. It would come to me. And I said, because I, I love Gary Bonds and stuff as a kid. So next thing I know, I'm up on stage. I was up there for half an hour. You know, having a blast. Uh, Bruce, I mean, nobody knows how to throw a party and to lay it down like the Bruce Springsteen and East Street Band. They just, they just got it. And it was so much fun. And, uh, and then after, after the show is over, uh, he's coming off stage, walks over and says, hey, well, we'll do it again. You know, and I thought he was kidding. You know, and I called his assistant the next day, Terry, and I said, hey, Terry. You know, he said, well, yeah, he's not kidding. He wants you to come. And uh, I went back the next night, and, and Dylan was there. Dylan went on stage and played uh, with Bruce and the band up at Highway 61, whatever, Highway 61. And uh, I got to say hello to Bob, and again, I've met him a number of times, and uh, a few times. And, you know, it's over the years, whether it was a Christmas party, Bruce had called me up, or I, was, I went to see him in Buffalo. Uh, Clarence's last show, Clarence Clemens, God bless Clarence Clemens. And uh, I was there on the side of the stage watching the show with my, my, my daughters. And uh, Bruce came near us near the end of the show and outside of the stage, you know, and, uh, and I said to my daughter, I said, I think he just saw me. And five minutes later, I get a text message on my phone from Bruce's uh, assistant. Uh, Bruce wants you backstage. He wants you to come on up. <laughs> Or higher and higher, the Jackie Wilson song. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. It's like, <laughs> even as I say it, it's like, what? It's like, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a guy, I'm a kid who followed his dreams, you know, against all kind of rational, logical thought. I just kind of follow a passion that I had, and it's led me to these really interesting places, you know, and it's not all easy. It's not all, you know, you're playing Shea Stadium, you're playing... I played Giants, I think I went on stage that night, this is in Buffalo, New York, and played higher and higher with Bruce. What a blast, you know, and uh, I played Giants, he called me up to do, play Giants Stadium with them when they were closing the stadium, 70,000 people. You can't imagine, you know, I mean, that band is so strong, and he is just so full of energy. He's just an exploding volcano on stage when you stand next to him, you know, uh, it's just, it's something else. I mean, not people, everybody knows it. You see him, there's one Bruce. And uh, he's a really good guy. I tell people that, you know, like, uh, they say, oh, what's Bruce like? I say, you know what? If you knew him, he's, he's everything you'd hope, that, you'd hope he'd be. He's got feet on the ground. He's a guy of goodwill. You know, he's got a big, huge heart, in, in which he gives every night he plays. He gives everything he's got. 
you be that famous and you keep your head on your shoulder. Oh, it's you know, amazing. You be that well known, you know, and you not turn into a, you know, a, a, something that's, you know, he's just done, he's done it. He's handled it really well. Great guy. And he's, he's light of day, the light of day shows. We do it at Bray Park every year. The last 17 years, Bruce comes, I think he's come 12 or 13 times and played for an hour and a half, raising money to cure Parkinson's. Nothing but a good cause. It's a good thing. Everybody knows, you know, everybody knows somebody's got Parkinson's. And uh, Bruce has been so good. And when I played, when I got to do my set, he, you know, he would come out and join me for a song. Very generous. And it's a total, total blast to play with him. I mean, my band is a, I've got a great band. You know, I'm, I'm a lucky guy. The band I have had this past, I don't know, bunch of years. Great. And uh, we have followed Bruce plays with us. And so I've been blessed in a lot of ways. You know, it hasn't always been easy, but my goodness, there sure has been some peaks and you know, some peaks and valleys in everybody's life, no doubt. It's even telling these stories makes me seem like it makes me laugh and go, "Wow, what a trip!" Yeah. Well, it's it's amazing, yeah, because you've had peaks and valleys, and as you said, it's funny as you've just started touring more in the last few years. What do you like? about touring I mean you did, when you were you did tour a lot and you did with The Who and it was a totally different touring when you were The Who because you're going to these huge stadiums but what do you like about touring now and are you glad that you are touring and what are some of your favorite cities to play well, well I did arenas with The Who and it was uh, we were flying from place to place and it was a whirlwind you know it was The Who and I, I didn't tour the rest of the, pretty much the rest of the uh the 80s, I didn't tour. And I was touring in the 90s here and there, just sporadically. Not touring, doing shows here and there. And I would go to Europe for stre little stretches. I did that a lot. And, but the last bunch of years, literally, it's led up to the last five, six years where I've been, five, six, seven years, I've been playing a lot. As you know, so I've, I, it's, been, it's been great. I, it's, it's real, it's very physically demanding just traveling. You know, we were in three weeks traveling around the UK and this friend of mine and his wife, uh, Mickey and Suzanne, they, they're uh, fans, and they drove along with a bunch of the a bunch of the dates. And they weren't playing, but they were, you know, just joining along kind of like the caravan of a couple of vehicles. And they were exhausted. You know, they weren't playing. And, you know, they're tough. They're physical. They're, they're you know, they're not, they're, they're tough, uh, you know, people who live tough lives. Not tough, but, I mean, they're, they're healthy and strong. And they were wiped out. You know, and they weren't playing. So it's, the hard part of it is, uh, and I'm feeling it now because I, I came in last night, so I'm exhausted but, uh, from Europe. But it was great. Uh, the great points of it, uh, you get to play songs. Uh, this tour was a duo tour, you know, acoustic. And whether it's with the full band or solo or with the, as a duo, it's, 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 uh, it's exhilarating. You know, I mean, these are songs that mean something to me. And as long as they continue to mean something to me, I'll continue, I'll do it. You know, and they totally do as much as ever. It's kind of like uh, I spent my whole life getting to this point. You know, that's what it feels like. And these are the days, my glory days, you know, these years. Of, it's hard, it's hard work, you know, just to, I mean, it's, it's great because you get to go to exotic locations, you know, travel around Europe, North Canada, North America, all kinds of great places, meeting with great people. You know, interesting people, different, everything. It's just a wild, vivid, real, surreal, uh, fascinating journey. Physically demanding for sure, and tough in that way. But on the other hand, 
I mean, it's, it's, we are, I don't, another day goes by that I'm not deeply grateful. And same, everybody in the band, the same way. You know, we're just, look, look what we get to, we get to do this. We get to go to this place. Even though we might drive six hours after, after sleeping four hours, driving six, you know, checking into another hotel, going to do a sound check, you know, for an hour and then wolfing down some food, going to play, you know, breaking down, saying hello to people afterwards and drive to the next place. That said, for those two hours on stage, it's just, it's, it's really worth it and special. And that's why I'm able to do it because it's so meaningful to me. And, uh, again, like if it's meaningful, I feel more, maybe if these songs mean something to me, maybe they mean something to somebody else. So I give everything I've got every night. And if I didn't, I wouldn't do it. If I didn't feel like giving everything, I would stop. That might try. I wouldn't do it. You know, so it's, uh, it's, I'm lucky. I'm very lucky, you know, long, circuitous journey, but favorite places to play? Um, every place where there's an appreciative audience is a great place to play, whether it's 25 people or 20,000. You know, it's really, that, that's, that, that's, that's true, you know, and uh, I've toured Italy a lot, Spain, really great places to go. Uh, Canada, but Nova Scotia, uh, there's great places up there. England, there's great places in England. You know, we spent, so, I mean, my first part of the answer is probably it. Favorite place to play ever? Hard to pick it. Uh, Giant Stadium with Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't but, get better than that. You know, that's not bad. You know, I did a, I did a gig uh, two years ago. It was two years ago. It could have been three. It was uh, a couple of days ago. Uh, there were, uh, the Grammys were honoring Pete Townsend at... Uh, Nokia, then called Nokia Theater in Times Square, New York. And uh, I got a phone call in early May from my booking agent asking if I was around May 28th. Because uh, the Grammys called saying that they were honoring Pete for his work with Music Cares charity. That's the Grammy charity. And they were going to have five artists sing two Pete Townsend songs. And uh, uh, Bruce Springsteen, Roger Daltrey, Joan Jett, Billy Idol, and me, you know, were going to sing two songs each with the Who Band. It, you know, it was amazing. And the, the, and the finale was the Won't Get Fooled Again with Bruce, Roger, Billy, and Pete Townsend, and the band it was just great. Amazing. I mean, there's videos of that. I mean, that's, I mean, I, I still don't believe that to this day, to get and stand on stage with those great, uh, great legendary players, musicians, songwriters, people, and to get to sing that song. What an absolute blast. I had the time of my life. I must say, even though I'm absolutely exhausted right now, you know, and my voice the last two shows, I got shows coming up this weekend, um, and I got four shows in three days, and I'm just going to, I got stuff to do, but I'll rest. I'm, I'm lucky, I'm luckiest, one of the luckiest guys in the world to get to do this, you know, I mean, it's, it's worth it, it's meaningful to me, you know, and if it brings some joy and happiness and inspiration to others, even better. That's makes it worthwhile. So I'm, I'm a lucky kid. I'm a lucky guy. That's awesome, man. You know, I want to thank you for coming on today. This was great. Um, I, I'm a huge Springsteen thank fan, you. so I love the stories. So people, go to your, go to his website. It's willynile.com. Follow him on Twitter. It's at willynile. His website has links to all his albums you can buy. It has links to his Facebook and all that stuff. So go check him out. Look up his music. Buy some of his music. Go to his website, willynile.com. Go to my, my website, coopertalk.net. I have over 650 episodes up there. Uh, email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. 
Twitter, I'm at Cooper Talk. I'll get back to you. Instagram, Cooper Talk One. And my other website, StopTheSalt.com. Remember, I had that health problem where I wrote a cookbook, 120 low-sodium recipes. No pictures to intimidate you. No long list of ingredients to sit there and go, make you go crazy. It's just easy, healthy cooking. You can get it at Amazon.com, but if you go to StopTheSalt.com, I make more money and I sign it. So anyway, people, go check out WoollyNile.com. Go follow him on Twitter. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next week.